Good morning. It's my joy to make a few introductions this morning, and I'll start with Dominic. You mind standing where you are? We've got Dominic Defoe's picture on the screen as well. I'll tell you a little bit about this young man. Uh, he was born in Maryland at age four. He moved to Arizona, um, finished his high school there, and now has moved to Tennessee. And it took you a while, but you finally got here. And we're grateful. We were talking earlier and said, that's an education right there, just living in all these different parts of our country. Uh, uh, he is just uh, about to finish his associate's degree at Columbia State and then will transfer to MTSU to continue studying business administration. Uh, he's also the grandson of Arlinda Weber uh, and told me how much he's enjoying our young adult and college age class. So uh, get to know Dominic and we're so glad that you're here. And then also a, a young family, Eric and Aaron Johnson. I'm not sure where, where are y'all seated. Oh, they're up there in the in the balcony. We've got their picture on the on the screen. I'll tell you a little bit about this family. Uh, Aaron grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and some of you may know Eric because he grew up here. And so, in some ways, this is a coming back home for Eric. Uh, he's the uh, son of Patsy and the late Tom Johnson. Just just wonderful folks. Um, they both went to Harding. Uh, Aaron is now a, an assistant teacher at uh, Columbia Academy uh, Preschool. And then Eric, after 14 years in the railroad, now has his own business, uh, Tree Service. Shall I go ahead and give you his phone number so you can call him? Uh, I know I, I want to sign up for that. Um, Evelyn is in fourth grade and Baker is in first. So get to know them and we're so grateful uh, that this can be their church home. If you're visiting with us, we encourage you to uh, consider this your church home. Uh, easily done. There's a little box on the sign-in sheet or just uh, tap one of the elders or ministers and we'll pass the word on. Let you visit with a couple of our elders, let you share your faith journey. They'll tell you about our church. If you need help in your salvation, they'll study with you as well um, and just help you to make that decision. And we would love for that to, to be the case. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you'll turn in your bulletin, there's an outline on the back if that'll help you. It seems fitting that after a sermon on lust and a sermon on pride, that we need a sermon on the giant of guilt. And that's what we're going to talk about today. When our first child, Marcy, was just learning to walk, I may have shared with some of you this story before. I was at home alone with her. Sia was at um, the doctor's office, Dr. Moon. He was our primary care physician and also a good friend from church. I left the room just for a heartbeat, and um, then I heard Marcy just screaming, and I ran back into the kitchen, and her face was just covered in blood. And, and I didn't know what happened, and to this day, I don't know. We think she may have just fallen and hit the corner of the, the facing of the tram. Um, but you know how a, a wound on the head just bleeds and bleeds, and it was just terrible. So I just, you know, grabbed a, a kitchen towel and, and pressed on it, but I could tell it was more than a Band-Aid. And, and I was at home alone, and I wasn't sure what to do, and so I just kept pressing on it, and it wouldn't stop bleeding. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go uh, to Dr. Moon's office, and, and he'll take care of it. So I just pressed her up against me and, and went out to the vehicle and didn't put her in her car seat. I just, she was so little, and, and she couldn't hold her head. And so I was holding the head to keep it from bleeding, and I finally got to Dr. Moon's office 
walked in and, and they knew us and so they could tell that I needed help and the nurse came quickly and looked at it and said, yeah, she's going to need some stitches, but it's going to be okay. And I was so relieved and I turned around and looked and everybody in the waiting room was just gasping. And, and I wasn't sure why, because I thought, well, they heard the nurse say that she was going to be okay. She just needs a few stitches. And I not, had not realized my white shirt was just blood red. Just and, and it was shocking to see. But I had no idea up to that moment. I was so focused on her. I was so focused on keeping her calm and, and trying to keep the blood uh, from, uh, to keep, trying to make it clot, to stop from just dripping everywhere, that I did not see my own blood stain. I want us to look in the Bible at a story about King David, who had his own blood stain. And he seemed to be oblivious. You know this story well. So we're going to look at a couple of verses, kind of walk through. You know, we love the story of David. Parents still name their children after David. The Bible tells us he's a man after God's own heart. We love David. And yet we know David was not perfect. The opening verse of 2 Samuel says so much in just a few words. Look at verse 1, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings marched out to war, David sent out Joab and his servants with the whole army of Israel. See, if you remember what we know about David from Scripture, he was a warrior king. He was a military leader. That was part of his strength, and he wasn't at his post Instead of being with his army, sleeping on the ground, he's back in his palace, sleeping in his own bed. That should be the first red flag. But that's not the only thing that wasn't happening as it should. From the rooftop terrace, David saw that beautiful woman bathing. And David was not able, even though he was able to slay the giant Goliath with just a slingshot... This giant of lust was too big for David at that moment. Even though he should have been with the army, should have been with his own men, he wasn't. Even though Bathsheba was married to another man, the giant of lust prevailed. And as the story of chapter 11 unfolds, now she's pregnant with David's baby. Her husband was out on the battlefield. Something had to happen. And you remember what David does next. He had Uriah brought back from the war so that he could be with his wife, trying to cover up his own sin. So when the baby was born, Uriah would not know that he's not the father. What do you do when you're guilty? Is that your first instinct also to try to cover up your sin? Reader's Digest tells a story about two women who took a short road trip, about 40 miles, to see a mutual friend, and they were there visiting for a while, and when it was time to leave, the woman that was driving realized that she had locked her keys in the car. This was years ago before cell phones, before the automatic door locks, and she left her keys in the ignition, and front door, it, it was locked. She didn't know what to do. In fact, the only thing she needed to do was to call her husband 40 miles away and have him drive and bring the extra set of keys. She knew he was going to be so frustrated. So she went inside, called him, 
He was upset, yes, but agreed to come. And so they were just sitting there waiting for that 40, 45 minutes for him to get there. About 10 minutes before he arrived, the other woman that was riding with her, they were standing by the car. She pulled on the back door and it opened. Keys and ignition, front door locked, back door open. So the woman who opened the back door, she looked at the woman who was driving and said, what are you going to do? And she said, I'm going to do what any red-blooded American wife is going to do. And she went over that back door, she pushed down the lock, and she pushed it closed. That's what she did. Let's look at how David tries to slam the back door shut on his past mistakes. He summons Sheba's husband from the battlefield and begins to cover up, but it doesn't work. He's got a plan. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 11. It's on the screen. Uriah answered, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camped in the open field. How can I go to my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. But David wouldn't take no for an answer. Look at verse 13. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. Can you imagine that? Get invited to eat with the king? I mean, how special. So that he made him drunk, it says. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his own house. Isn't it interesting how the scriptures help us to see here Uriah has more honor and integrity than King David at this moment. But David continues with this plan, basically sends Uriah to his death. You remember the plan there? Has the troops withdraw, just leaving him vulnerable? And sure enough, Uriah is killed. After a time of grieving, David takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. It looks good. It looks upright on the surface. As far as everybody else knows, it's all good. Nobody knows. After the baby is born, David convinces himself the secret is safe. But David forgot about God. God sees it all. God knows it all. So after the birth of the baby, God sends a prophet Nathan to David. Pick up the story, chapter, two, chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he arrived, he said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and, grew, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, as a traveler came to the rich man who refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him, instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David burned with anger against that man and said to Nathan, As sure as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and has shown no pity, he must pay for the lamb four times over. I hope you see in this, here's David who's just in the middle of a, in the guilt of sin, and yet his sense of justice is still strong. But his blindness is stronger. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And in an instant, his eyes are open, and he sees the bloodstain all over himself. He realized that lust had, had turned to immorality, had turned to deceit, had led to murder. One led to another and another. 
But for months, David thought he was home free. He thought his cover-up had worked, that there would be no repercussions. He had been able to deceive everyone, probably even Bathsheba. If you read commentaries, they think Bathsheba, she's just a pawn in this whole game as well. But you can't forget about God. God sees it all. He knew what was happening. And God sent Nathan to convey the message of punishment and consequence to the king. You know, the Bible teaches, and David knew this, that your, your sins will find you out. We know the Bible teaches that you reap what you sow. Look at the text of how David, the most powerful man in the land, responds. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin, Nathan replied. You will not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, the son born to you will surely die. And now notice how Nathan, the prophet of God, gives him immediate comfort. The Lord has taken away your sin. But he explains the consequences, though, are going to be extreme. The death of this baby. I thought about this topic and and just how how do we talk about it? Because it is so common for people to go through life bearing the weight of sin. It's it's a ball and chain if there ever was one. It is truly a burden. You still remember what happened back in high school. Back when you were a young adult, you did wrong. You were ashamed of what you did. And you wish you could go back and and, and now you you look back and, and you wouldn't do it again. And you have this sense of regret. That's how King David felt. He was so ashamed and that regret was gnawing. Maybe for you it was high school or your early date. Maybe it was in your college years. Maybe it was on a business trip. Maybe it was years and years, decades ago. Or maybe it was just months ago. But it's right here. That regret, I mean, you remember it. And you're just going about your day and you see something and it just comes back as if it happened that very morning. That wrong decision because of a weakness because of temptation, maybe ignorance, maybe fear. But the effects of that can still be with you to this very morning. I've noticed that people respond differently to guilt. You ever notice that? Someone said uh, in the library before we came out, we were praying together, but before then, uh, someone said, so you're going to make us feel guilty this morning? And I said, well, it depends. Because people respond differently. In fact, look on the screen. Let's kind of think about this. Some people have no guilt. They have no shame. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul speaks about people who have a seared conscience. It's a strong word, isn't it? Only time in the New Testament that that word appears. And it carries with it the idea of being cauterized. Like like it's burned. There's no sensation. There is no feeling. The prophet Jeremiah wrote about how people lost their ability to blush. They're just full throttle. There is no shame. They have no guilt. And you can swing the pendulum. There's another category where those who have unfounded guilt. You feel guilty for something, but you shouldn't. Maybe you're not guilty, but, but maybe for you it's other people who make you feel that way. You have people in your life that do that. Maybe it's a parent that they're just so oppressive. There are some parents who treat their adult children and and just continue to manipulate them. Have you seen the t-shirt that says, my mother is a travel agent for guilt trips? There's a reason why that's a thought out there because it happens. 
Or maybe it's somebody who just, they just manipulate you and they make you feel like you're guilty. And because you're the conscientious type, you take that guilt even though you didn't do it. Unfounded guilt might also be self-imposed guilt. You're the perfectionistic type and so if something goes wrong, it's your fault. Are you that way? Maybe it's unrealistic expectations. So there's no guilt, there's unfounded guilt. But there's also appropriate guilt. It's not that there's no such thing as guilt, or we should never encounter guilt. There is an appropriate guilt. Guilt can be used for good. Appropriate guilt is when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. You should feel guilty. Appropriate guilt is when our conscience are stirred for an actual wrongdoing. We did wrong, and we feel guilty about it. It's that gentle but persistent call to repentance and restitution. It seeks restitution and, and resolution and, and, and a fresh start. Guilt is appropriate when it moves you toward repentance. And that way we can be free of our guilt of sin. That's what the Bible talks about. Look at Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. It's on the screen. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove the transgressions from us. Don't you love that phrase? You've heard that before, right? As far as the east is from the west. Well, how far is that? Can't be measured. That's how well God does in forgiving us and removing this from us. The Bible also says he will remember our sins no more. The Bible talks about our sins being buried at the bottom of the sea. All those word pictures describe an, an amazing attribute of God. What he does, the way he looks at our sin. And yet, even though God remembers them no more, Satan remembers. And Satan reminds you. Those little triggers, those little memories, and, and it's just right here. And that guilt persists. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Short verse, but very powerful. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So this godly sorrow is a good thing. And godly sorrow is appropriate guilt. There are times we should feel guilty. That's godly sorrow. That's what the Bible talks about. If you're engaged in any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, you should feel guilty. If you lied or deceived someone to, to make a sale or get your way or make the grade or whatever it is, you should feel guilty. There are times we should feel that appropriate guilt. I think about it like this. Appropriate guilt is like those rumble strips on the side of the road. You know what I'm talking about? You veer off a little bit on the outside of the lane, and it's so unpleasant because the whole car just kind of rumbles for a moment. But you've not wrecked yet. It's alarming you to, to correct. Change the direction you're going or you will wreck. That's the purpose. That, that is our conscience. That is what guilt can do. To, it can help us in that way to motivate us toward repentance. 
That's why we love Psalm 51. Some of you are probably already thinking, I hope we get to Psalm 51 because you know this psalm. If you don't know this psalm, write Psalm 51 in the back of your Bibles or or somewhere where you will know to go here because there will be times you're going to need Psalm 51. David wrote this after his confrontation by, by Nathan. Look at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. It's on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Do you hear how personalized he is, how vulnerable David is? This is, I think, part of that, a man after God's own heart. He's convicted. And David is just raw and open in his words. Skip down to verse 9 and following. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. There's a word, isn't it? Blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I started thinking about that term, blood guiltiness. And it reminded me of Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. You know this verse as well. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. What a transformation. What an admission of guilt. He was guilty. And God knew it. So David confessed. So let's learn from David. If you look at your outline, a couple of blanks to fill in. They're going to be on the screen. But let's learn from David how he responded. He was guilty. He transgressed God, and God called him out for it. And he lays out a step-by-step plan for how we can also come clean with God. There's a reason we call it that, come clean. You confess, you share, you go through the process. Well, here's the first step, and that is acknowledgement. You just acknowledge You acknowledge your sin. You admit you are a sinner. You did it. You admit that you're guilty. And then second, there's repentance. That's just a change of direction. You've heard this before. It's not just a change of mind. It's a change of direction. And not just a little bit, like 10 degrees. It's an about face. In Acts chapter 26, Paul talked about demonstrating repentance by your deeds. So it's not just saying the word, I repent. It's making choices that reveal that you've changed. And then third is confession. It's verbalizing your offense. It's praying to you and confessing that to God. It's going to the person that you sinned against and admitting it to them, confessing it to them, the one that you wounded by your action. And then number four, and it's kind of part of the process, is contrition. It's the broken heart. It's not just admitting it, yeah, I did bad. But it's that broken spirit. David alludes that to the, toward the end of Psalm 51. One Bible professor told his students, every time I sin, it just reminds me that I do not love God enough. Isn't that true? 
Isn't that what God called David out for? It's like, you're just walking all over me. You're not treating me as holy. My choices at time have to break God's heart. And contrition is when we get that, when we realize that. And then number five is acceptance by faith that God has washed me clean. That I have been created new. And not question it. You show your trust by accepting his promise. You don't have to go through the rest of your life doubting God's forgiveness, wondering if he truly does separate it as far as the east is from the west. Is it really at the bottom of the sea? Does God really not remember it anymore? Sometimes we struggle with accepting God's promise here. Let's look at another psalm, Psalm 32. This was written actually before, I mean, after Psalm 51. A good friend of mine, a spiritual mentor, Nikki Presnell, one time was asked, we were at Bible camp, and, and, and he was teaching uh, the adults who were not teaching other students. We were all there in, in, a, in a class together, and one time someone asked him, what's your favorite Bible verse in all of Scripture? It was this one. And I remember it to this day, because I think it should be yours and mine as well. Look at what it says here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Isn't that something? No deceit in your spirit? No iniquity held against you? Your sin is covered? Your sin is paid for? You're free! You're washed clean! No wonder it's his favorite verse. It's an incredible passage. There should be incredible joy in all of us when we realize we've been set free. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful enough. Jesus bore our sins on his shoulders. Do you remember that, that line in the song we just sang? Isn't that what we were saying? That his sacrifice was enough. But then he writes about David does, what it's like beforehand, before you're washed, before you confess, before you admit it, before you, you feel sorry for it and you have that contrite spirit, before you accept that joy of your salvation, what's the before like? Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your right hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, when I read through 2 Samuel, it doesn't tell us anything about what David was thinking or feeling during that time. It seems as, as though he didn't care. And maybe that's true. Or could it be, could it be the most powerful force that guilt has is that emotional turmoil. That's the best word I can think of. Just the baggage that goes with guilt. And that's when guilt becomes a giant. It becomes so huge. It's just it's overpowering. It's like everywhere we turn, there it is because it just gets bigger and bigger. Because we are guilty. Because we are guilty. And because we're guilty, there it is. And it's constantly reminding us David used the words groaning. He talks about being sapped with strength. Yeah, you're defeated. Why even try? But don't miss the fifth verse. Keep reading. 
Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God takes incredible delight in giving us even more than we ask or imagine. That is who he is. And it's great because Jesus Christ... Because of what he did, because of who he is, we can be absolved forever. We can be forgiven forever. He's our great high priest. His sacrifice was enough. The writer of Hebrews calls it once and for all. It was that good. It was that effective. And not only does he save us from our sins, he takes away the guilt. And when we fully understand the forgiveness Jesus offers, we understand that guilt goes with it. And you need both taken away because Satan is going to bring up your past again and again and drop it in front of you and try to make you trip over it. And you're going to think about, okay, how am I going to deal with that? How am I going to respond when he brings up something that I've already been forgiven of? It's in the past. It's forgiven. God has washed me clean. And Satan says, oh, yeah, but you did this. And the truth is you did that. So how do you respond Did you ever see the bumper sticker? It says, the next time Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. That's why you need to know Scripture. Because that's what Scripture says. Jesus has won the victory. And Satan's going to go down screaming, God will remove your guilt if you let him. It's his promise, but you have to let him. You ever heard the name William Cooper? Maybe. He was a songwriter in the early 1800s. But it was after a time of just, just pure mental torment. Tried to take his own life, but wasn't successful. He finally came to terms with who God is and how God saves And he wrote these lines. You're familiar with them. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. You remember that? Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. I was reading reading through that, that line, and it's very familiar, and I thought, you know, sometimes we're critical of the newer praise songs because they will repeat the same line again and again and again and again. I think there's a reason why there are times we need to repeat a line again and again. Because were the Christians 200 years ago struggling with the same thing Christians today struggle with? And that is accepting the forgiveness that Jesus makes possible? Maybe we need to sing that again and again and again. We're going to close our worship singing a song very familiar Old, classic, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. We're adding a new line in there. 
and it goes so well. My chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Jesus did not die on the cross. Take all of your sin debt so that you can live the rest of your life in misery because you've never dealt with guilt. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be saved from your sins and free from your guilt and to have such joy, not because of how good you are, but because of how amazing His grace is. And so we sing a song, you're singing so loud, you're parting the person's hair with the one sitting in front of you. Because you can't help yourself. And when, when something comes up and a friend of yours and they're talking about doubting and they're concerned, you speak with joy and assurance, not of your own conceit, but of your own powerful God who saves you. This morning, this song of invitation is to encourage you to live a life of freedom, to be able to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If you've not yet confessed Jesus as Lord and had your sins washed away in baptism, we want to help you with that. Or if we can help you with a sin problem, whatever it may be, whatever that guilt issue is, maybe to have enough faith to believe, to accept the promise of God, whatever you need, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage. The Lord lift his countenance upon